Welcome, everyone, back to the Embit Podcast. I'm your host, Seamus Bidan, and today we are joined by the one and only Courtney Ream. After helping taking Under Armour and Vitamin Water public over 15 years ago while working as an investment banker at Goldman Sachs, he and his brother Carter founded their first business, the popular spirits brand Vive, which grew from zero to one of the best-selling independent liquor brands in the U.S., after the sale of Vive in 2016, they founded the early-stage consumer tech investment firm, M13, which now has over $900 million in assets under management. M13 has invested in over 130 companies, including Bird, Daily Harvest, Matterport, Ring, Thrive Market, Tonal, and many more. The VC is also known for its high-profile investors, such as Richard Branson, Tony Robbins, and Ariana Huffington. So first off, thank you, Courtney, for taking the time to join the show. It's a pleasure to have you on today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Seamus. Absolutely. So I think we first want to start off, what would probably be the earliest thing I would need to know about you to understand who you are and everything that you have accomplished? Mm, that is such a good question to start. I think you would have to know that my, I think, biggest desire is to leave the world better than I found it. I think a lot of people say that, but my my real, I think, power or superpower, to take an overused term, is to be an innovator and overlay that with connecting people. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. You were, an inv you are currently now an investor. You were a founder. How did you first get interested in business? Yeah, and I would maybe we'll get into it, but I'm I'm now kind of both an investor and I consider myself very much still an entrepreneur because at M13 we actually kind of have a what we call our launch pad where we incubate our own brands and brands with other people. So, for example, we did a brand with Tony Robbins in the last year called Life Force, and so although I am not the day to day CEO, I like to you know do these things in a way where I can be like a very involved executive chairman, and then obviously do a lot of investing too. So to answer your other question, early roots in business, definitely from from my parents. I think, you know, proximity is power. And growing up, my parents were, were in business in different ways. My mom worked for quite a while before she had us. I know right before we started here, we were talking about my, my alma mater, Columbia. And my mom went to Columbia Business School, class of 72, and there was about 20, 25 women out of 500. And then my dad is, was always in business. So I think when you're around it, you get curious and, and eventually inspired. Yeah, definitely. You started your career over at Goldman Sachs, working on mergers and acquisitions for consumer companies. Could you share a little bit more about that journey, especially when you later were working with Vitamin Water and other companies with your brother, uh, Carter? Well, I don't feel that old, except when I talk to you here, Seamus. So I, I think you have to go back to a time when there wasn't really in access to information the same way there is now. Definitely not internet. So I think when I was in college, I wasn't I wasn't as versed on other options and, and truthfully didn't really think, what else could I be doing? So I kind of felt like finance, usually in the form of investment bank or consulting was a good place to start. Could be much worse things in life than starting at Goldman Sachs and thought it would just be great training ground for whatever I did next. And I'm really grateful I did it. It was, I think like all things that are really hard, maybe we look back and forget just how hard it was working 80, 90, 100 hours a week. There was a deal I once worked on where I slept seven hours in a week. I now need more than seven hours a night, but do what you do and you need to do right. And it shows you kind of what, what you're what you're about and what your grid is. But it was pretty hard to just stay awake for, for everything but seven hours in a week, much less build models and everything like that. But I think 
it was it was great to kind of get exposure to a broad swath of things at Goldman Sachs. I'm I've always liked things that you can touch, taste, feel. So I've always kind of been into the consumer, the consumerization side of things. So it was a, it was a great place to start my career. Yes, definitely. My motto is always do the work. If you want to get anything done, you always got to put in the work, put in the hours. I know we've had I'll a tell lot you one of, of my one yeah. of my favorite quotes because you know life. People will say life is this or that. Life is ten percent what happens and ninety percent how you react to it. I believe in that. But to your other point you just made, I actually really believe life is ten percent of what happens and ninety percent of how you follow up on it. Exactly, I agree. Especially with emails or you know anything in general like that. But we, you know, we on the podcast we've had a lot of founders and investors, specifically investors and VCs, join the show. One of the patterns I've noticed is we've seen a lot of them come out as being investment bankers, specifically, for example, Spencer Raskoff, who now runs a VC fund. He was the co-founder of Zillow and was an investment banker over at Goldman Sachs. Why do you think we see so many investment bankers turn into founders and investors? I think, well, I guess it kind of believes, I guess it kind of depends on your belief of, of, entrepreneurship, what makes great founders. I, I believe it's a little bit of nature and nurture, meaning there are some people that we've we've both met, I'm sure that you agree that that person, he or she is is better equipped to be a founder. They have these innate tools, or they're they're instinctual leaders, all the things you hear people say. But I do think most of those things are cultivated, even if some people start with more of an advantage. And I think when you think of traits that you need as an entrepreneur, I think investment bankers tend to have a lot of them, right? High achiever, type A, hopefully they have a strong work ethic. Hopefully they have some grit. I think investment banking actually teaches you really early on, what am I, what am I really, really good at? What am I best in class or world-class at? And what am I just okay or pretty good at? Because when you're surrounded by people from all the top schools around the world, you learn really quickly if you're if you're good at something vis-a-vis your peers or not. And so I think, you know, when people say, what are you looking for in entrepreneurs now? A big part of what I'm looking for, it, it used to be this, this kind of kingmaker, the people we think of, the Elon Musks. I think now it's so much more about knowing what you know, knowing what you don't know. And the superpower is actually figuring out how to surround yourselves with the people who are strong where you're not much the way, at least in theory, a president should align his cabinets and different positions. And so that's kind of how I think of, of being a great entrepreneur. Yeah, especially in the early stage where you guys tend to focus on. At that point, it's really all about you know the people and it, whether that founder is the best founder to lead that company to success. But now that we transition a little bit, after you left Goldman Sachs, you founded a company called Vive. What is Vive and what did it aim to accomplish? Yeah, I think the second part of the question is the great part. What did it aim to accomplish? Vive at the time was really one of the first kind of organic and all natural spirits brands. We were really attempting to be a, I guess you'd call it a, a, our tagline was a better way to drink, a vodka alternative in a world of, it wasn't like now where tequila has gone crazy or, you know, depending on where you're in the country, a lot of dark spirits and whiskeys. It was all vodka, vodka, vodka. Then it was Grey Goose. It was Kettle One. It was Belvedere. Seamus, you're not of age yet. So hopefully you don't know all these things, even though you're <laughs> nodding at me here. But I think our goal is, as I said, was really to be a better way to drink. Could we create a better product in the bottle? and a better kind of company. And we hoped that that would resonate with people, meaning this is a product I like. I would drink it anyways. And oh, by the way, they do a bunch around sustainability and different initiatives like that. Yeah. 
When I spoke with Matt McGinnis, he joined Rippling as COO with his friend Parker Conrad, who he's known for quite a long time. They go back all the way since they were friends for decades now. And I think because of that dynamic they had, they were able to scale Rippling into a pretty big company and work together in other ways maybe most partners or co-founders wouldn't be able to. How do you think you and your brother working together and co-founding Vive has been a competitive advantage? Well, you know, my brother's my co-founder in Vive. We've co-founded other companies since then. And now he's he's my co-founder in M13, even though we have other partners. So now it's been about 15 years of, of co-founding different things together. We've even written a book together or other things like that, been on a TV show together, things we might touch on. And I think, you know, family is different, different than other co-founder relationships. I don't, I don't, pretend to have so many to base it on, but enough to know that family's different. Um, but hopefully there's in, inherent things in that that no one else can replicate. Primarily trust and also that, you know, your brother or your sister or whatever the family dynamic is, they tend to know you better than anyone else, maybe even better than you know yourself. So our relationship has really evolved a lot and changed a lot in the last 15 years. But I'm proud of the fact that we've we've found a way to make it work as long as we have. Yeah. And a few weeks back, you know, when I was speaking to Matt, he built, prior to Rippling, he built this ed tech company called Inkling, which raised over $100 million. And he ended up selling the company. But he told me afterwards, he didn't want to go through that again. And he said, if he knew how hard it was, he might have never started the company in the first place. How do you think founders can balance between that self-awareness and understanding maybe other companies that might have failed in their industry while not letting others get them down from going after their goals? Yeah, that that is that is the truth. I mean, my brother and I wrote a book called Shortcut Your Startup. And in the very beginning, we say you should balance getting in the trenches, really researching your idea and understanding the market and the competition, all that, with the fact that there is some ignorance is bliss in entrepreneurship. Almost everyone I know says, if I had known then what I know now, I probably would have never done it. And that's that goes for successful ventures and unsuccessful ones. So there's there's some nice thing about not knowing what's everything that's around the corner because it's the hard thing about hard things, as they say. But um, yeah, I I think I think once you've done it once, especially you know it's going to be hard. You just don't know in what ways or what points. And so I'm not looking for something not to be hard. I'm personally someone that likes hard things. I like. Fulfillment. Fulfillment's different than happiness. That's probably a different podcast. But I think I enjoy the idea of knowing that something's going to be really hard, but not knowing which ways it's going to be hard, because that's when you, you know, kind of find out things about yourself and and the product or company you've built. Yeah, definitely. It's more it's that phrase of like doing the impossible sometimes, which is one of the things we talked about with Brian Scudamore, who founded this company called One Eight Hundred Got Junk. He started with just a thousand dollars, and you know, franchise experts told him it couldn't be done, but he said, "No, I'm going to do the impossible." He ended up building it into a seven hundred million dollar business, and it's something I think that mindset that some entrepreneurs have that maybe give them that competitive advantage to move that extra next step and be able to keep building and keep growing even during when times get tough. So you mentioned, I know you have an analogy that essentially says there's like a couple different types of businesses, a speedboat and a sailboat. What would probably be the difference between the two? And why is it so important to know which one you are as a founder? 
Yeah, I think this is probably at least the headline, my favorite favorite chapter in our book, because we live in a world where everybody, you know, everybody wants to be a speedboat. A speedboat is what you read about. It's what makes the headlines. The speedboats are all names that we know, Uber, Airbnb, everything else. But what's a speedboat powered by? Gas. What's gas in this case? Capital. Venture capital money, debt, you name it. And so it's not as sexy to be a sailboat, but a sailboat is a beautiful thing on its own. It's if you do it right, you know, you always have to find the North Star. You always have to find which way the wind is going. You always want to be catching these little bursts and these little gusts. And I think it's important that that people realize that, I don't know, 99% of companies are meant to be sailboats, meaning you're going along, you catch a little burst of wind, you have a little momentum, progress, sales growth, whatever the case may be. The wind dies down, feels like you're kind of plateauing and flat. You have to sit there, you have to rethink things, you have to reassess the wind and the wind is, you know, kind of your goals and your North Star and then catch another gust of wind. But then when you eventually look up, you see that you've sailed from A to B or B to C or C to D and made it a long way. And I think most people should keep in mind that 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 kind of progress equals happiness, even if it's not light speed, speedboat progress. And oh, by the way, the punchline of the chapter is that kind of tongue in cheek. Let's not forget, most sailboats do have a motor. Maybe they're not speedboats, but if you ever have to, you can put the sail down and you can motor. But most speedboats do not have a sail, meaning you can always choose to go from a sailboat to a speedboat. It's really hard to go the other way from a speedboat to a sailboat. The other thing to add about that is, you know, when you're a speedboat, you can be moving a lot quicker and uh, you might miss certain things or it could actually make the journey a little bit harder and maybe it could make you more likely to fail. We've seen a lot of companies that just because they've raised so much money and just kept going after more money and raising the next round, they actually end up failing because they lost track of their actual key mission. How do you balance between that and uh, stay afloat during those types of times? I love the phrase, one of the phrases that, that's probably my favorite one from the book is, you know, to be an entrepreneur, you need to have a microscope in one eye and a telescope in the other eye. And it's so true because everyone who's done it knows you're putting out fires day to day. You're waking up and a lot of days, your time is not your own. How you spend your day, who you spend it on and with is not what you thought. Yet you have to do that and then somehow extract yourself from that minutia and look up and look for the big picture and keep that telescope in the other eye so you know where you're going. And that, I think, and it would take a lot to convince me that that is not the true trick of, of entrepreneurship for most businesses. Definitely. And now that we pivot a little bit from you know being an entrepreneur, and you mentioned you still are one. So with M13, now delving into venture capital a little bit, you sold Vive in 2016 and co-founded M13 with Carter, which is a brand development and venture capital firm that has invested into over 130 companies like we mentioned earlier. Why did you start M13? Yeah, it's a great question. The world, I'm sure you've had other venture capitalists on here, I think you've mentioned people who I who I really admire and consider peers like a Spencer Raskoff. I think he would probably say he loves to build stuff and he loves to invest. And I think he's he's showing he's really good at both. I think for my brother and I, being entrepreneurs has made us better investors and being investors has made us better entrepreneurs. So I want to keep a pulse on both and kind of have this virtuous cycle. We kind of felt like the world did not need another venture capital firm. But if we created one that had 
a, a different infrastructure, a different way of adding value, a different point of view that 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 could be something the world needs. And so that's what we've tried to do with with M13. We have a whole holding company that about two thirds of our people have have been operators themselves. We have a ton of people who work cross-functionally on both things that we invest in and things we start with different specialties. So we could have a head of data strategy working on a company we just invested or something that's pre-revenue that we're starting. Same goes for you know people who work in brand and comms, people who work in culture and hiring, all, all that sort of stuff. And so that is one of many things I think make us really different. And hopefully, if you surveyed our, our founders, they would they would say the same for those reasons. And over the past few decades, we've seen a major shift where I feel like money has been more democratized for founders to be able to access. So now that all the founders and money is more available, how is being as a VC, how can you add value in a new way that's beyond just money? Sure. Well, one, it's it's an interesting time that I agree with you, more money is available. When you look at some of the numbers, it's actually gotten really hard this year. There's a lot of people kind of just sitting on the sidelines and waiting. And it's it's interesting because a year ago, I saw some, we'll say, okay, companies getting funded. And now I'm seeing some really good companies not or struggling a lot. Yeah. It's all about adding value beyond the money because in a world where that becomes a little more commoditized, we need to you know, venture as an asset class. I really think it needs to find new ways to add value, not just with money, but they want to feel like you know, IQ stuff, EQ stuff, helping with hiring, helping with strategy, helping with just be empathetic toward the plight of a founder and just how hard it is, you know, from a mental health point of view, all those things. And so I think our best references is always other founders. If we're trying to uh, win a deal and invest in a company and we say, hey, talk to this founder. And they say, I would not be here without M13. They did this, this, and this that nobody else did. I think those things go such a long way. We even, when we when we raise a new fund, we always encourage people to talk to our founders because if a founder says, yes, this is this is a really unique way of doing it, that that is, I think, to me, the ultimate validation. Yeah, I think that makes sense. One of the things you mentioned was providing founders resources. How do you balance between providing founders with value and helping them out versus, you know, controlling the operations and hiring? Because I've seen a lot of stories and VCs have told me this where there have just been other venture capitalists and investors who, you know, kind of turned evil per se and decided to try to control the company, et cetera. How do you balance between helping them out and, you know, being a controller? Sure. Well, I would say most most good entrepreneurs believe in themselves, I guess, to the extent of like, okay, I can, I can, I can do this. But as I said, increasingly, most of the best ones I know don't think that they can do it all by themselves. And they're not, they're not opposed to receiving feedback and help as long as they think it's the right help or in the right way or the right cadence and, and that it's actually valuable. I can give, you know, we all know those people who talk a lot, but say very little, if you will. Good founders know when you're when you're not adding value. And so <laughs> even one thing we do is making sure our companies are set up in a way that like, do we want board seats or things where we have some measure of influence where we invest? Absolutely. Do we ever want to have outsized control? No, we want the founders that we back and believe in to be able to control their own companies. So I think it's usually a question of one, meeting whatever founder it is where they're at. You know, you, you kind of have to meet them more than halfway to start. And then just demonstrating your value because 
success begets success. And the more we show that we can add impact and do it in a, in a way that isn't super distracting or, and, you know, even sometimes takes things off the plate of the, the founder, that's, that's where the real magic is. And over the years, venture capital has changed quite a bit. You know, the market is seeing an increased number of Gen Z angels, native, digital natives, and purpose-driven investors leading the charge in venture capital, aiming for higher returns with less risk. What do you see as the future in of the venture capital industry for the next five to 10 years? Well, I think... You know, the, the future is hard to predict, except for to say that it's, it's the question to me you already asked. It's about, it's about way more than money. It's about different things than just money. And I think it's, it's got to be about adding value because there's a lot of money out there. And right now, people still don't even know what to, you know, who to take it from or how to take it or where to add value. So I think by the definition of, of venture, there's, if someone's figured out how to really get better returns with less risk, I'd love to meet them. You know, I always joke that if if you if you could figure out the weather or hiring, you'd have the first trillion dollar, you know, the first trillionaire. But I think those things are hard to figure out. And I think de-risking things is is probably the next one up there. And so I think it's about, you know, being our, our North Star with M13, the thing that we're always striving is to understand the future of consumer behavior. That's where we invest. And we kind of have sub themes from there. But I think, you know, everyone's talking about AI. Take something like AI. What is it going to disrupt? I'm quite sure it's going to disrupt everything to the extent and how and under what timeline. I don't know. I don't, I don't think anyone really knows. There's people who know more than I do, but it's about being nimble and reacting to those things really quickly. And then also, I think then also it's about staying disciplined to who you are and what, what you're good at. You know, we've, We've lived through some of these bubbles of these mega funds like Tiger Global and SoftBank, where we lost all these deals to them and they were bidding twice as much as we were. And we just said, we have to stay disciplined. We can't afford to overpay and things like that. And, you know, without dancing on anyone's grave, you see where some of those funds and some of those trends are at. So we really want to build an, an enduring franchise that's around for decades to come that isn't kind of faddish. And so I think it's about sticking with the basics and figuring out what you're good at and staying with your principles. People said the same thing about Web3 and how it can revolutionize our world. I'm personally on the belief that I think AI will be our future and here to stay. And I think, you know, a lot of times we talk about AI companies, but I think it's like the same thing back in the 1990s. People mentioned internet companies. Eventually, they'll just all be companies. I think almost every company will have implemented AI in some way, shape or form. But why is AI different this time? I think AI, well, I think it also depends, you know, how we define all these terms because, you know, now we're seeing pitches where someone goes, it's an AI company. I was like, no, it's a company where you have some data. You don't even actually have a good handle on your data. You don't know how to use it even algorithmically, much less AI. And so we're hearing these things tossed around and, and Web3 or Metaverse was kind of some of some of the same. So I think it's important not to I think it's important to contextualize these terms, not weaponize them or use them in some kind of exaggerated context. But I think it's hard for me, you know, you take something like Web3 or the metaverse. I think some people think it sounds great to spend time in the metaverse. Some people think it sounds terrible. I'm personally an in real life sort of person. So it doesn't mean I won't find applications for the metaverse or for augmented reality. I just don't think it'll be as part of a bigger part of my daily life as maybe some people who grew up more digitally native like you. 
I think AI is different because it probably is something that hangs over everything we're, we're talking about. As, as you said, it used to be, you know, the, the, it, there are these things like the internet that just kind of sit over everything or, or even things like I'm really big into corporate and social responsibility. And I hope that we're getting close to a point where someone doesn't go, oh, look at this company. They're a great example of ESG or being green or whatever. We just say, oh, it's a company because everyone should have that responsibility. And I think AI will start to embed in those ways, subtle and, and not so subtle. Definitely. And as we wrap it up here, what would be your takeaways for maybe the next generation of entrepreneurs looking to start a company? What would be your advice to them? I think my advice, you know, I didn't, I didn't grow up thinking I'd ever be an entrepreneur. It wasn't something people around me did, you know, I was around business, as I said, and I, I, but I think in retrospect, there was a bunch of entrepreneurial things happening around me. We just didn't call it entrepreneurship. Now, now we do. But I think just be curious, just have a growth mindset, just look for an opportunity. Doesn't mean it'll turn into an idea and that doesn't mean it'll turn into a company. But if you have enough moments of curiosity, enough things where you're looking for the growth, I, you know, when I worked at Goldman Sachs, I thought I had never had an idea about one single thing. Turns out when you work 100 hours a week, your brain is not that free to think of creative ideas or observe stuff. So it's about slowing down. It's about observing things. It's about, you know, kind of wanting to see different things in the world and then trying to make that that vision a reality. And I think I'm on a little bit of a crusade around grit right now. I actually interviewed Gary V, Gary Vaynerchuk, who's a big social media personality at a at a thing that we did last week for M13. And we both agreed that, that some of these I wouldn't say softer skills, but these things that you can't measure on a on a math score are the things that I'm worried are going to start to be missing. And there are these things like just good old fashioned hustle and grit. And I do think burnout and hustle culture is real, but you ha- you do have to hustle. It doesn't all just happen magically sitting in your underwear doing nothing. Your evidence sitting here of this, Seamus. But I think you, I will always back the entrepreneur who I feel is just really gritty and finds a way to GSD get you know what done. And eventually that, that I think tends to pay off. So those would, those would be the things that I, that I'd impart to my younger self. Yeah. I love your point on hustle, especially curiosity. One of the things we spoke with Mark Cuban, because I feel like you consistently have to learn and the more you learn, the more you're actually able to think about and the more you're able to grow. So totally agree with you on that. All right, everyone. Well, that wraps it up for today's episode. Thank you very much, Courtney, for taking the time to join the show. I greatly appreciate it and hope you have a great rest of your day. You too. Thanks so much for having me. It was a lot of fun and I'm seeing big things in your future. Appreciate it.